The Bible says one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. and They're going to give the worship that is due Him, but I don't want to wait until then. I don't want to have to start doing it then because I never practiced it now. Do you believe in an afterlife? Do you believe there's something after this life? Last Sunday we talked about the wonder of heaven. A physical place. It's like a garden of Eden, except this time no serpent. It's a real place. A physical place. Where real people are going to spend a real eternity with the real Savior. It's a place beyond human understanding, but not beyond human ability to believe. Let me say it again. It is a place, this Garden of Eden. What's coming next? What's on the other side of the veil? It's a place beyond human understanding, but the Bible says it is not beyond the ability to believe. Satan, the liar, wants us to think of heaven as just barely better than this present earth. And if he can do that, he can keep us content with earthly stuff and distracted from the treasures of heaven. And let me say, much of the modern American church is worldly. Yeah, I said that. Worldly. Distracted by the things of this world. Satan wants to sell you this present earth. It's a bad deal. He wants to sell you this present earth to make this earth our heaven right now. And last week I touched upon the idea, moving across America, is this idea of the prosperity gospel. This idea that you can have your best life now. And what that does is it takes your mind off of that which is coming and makes you so connected to what's here now as if you can hold on to it that you get distracted about the realities of the coming afterlife. We sang a song a few minutes ago that He is our portion. And when we were singing that song in the first service today, suddenly I, I, I see in my mind, I see the children of Israel coming across the Jordan River. Forty years they've wandered. And they're coming into the promised land. And I, uh, Joshua by God tells, God tells Joshua to assign the land to the tribes of Israel, to the sons of Israel. And when it came to the Levitical priest, they didn't get any. They weren't to accumulate any wealth. The other tribes were. But he said to Joshua, tell the Levitical priest that I will be their portion. I will be their treasure. The priesthood. The, I will be their sufficiency. And you know what? In the New Testament, you know who the priesthood is? The church. That, that, that picture is that we're not here right now to accumulate wealth. Oh, you're going to get wealth. In fact, you're going to be co-heirs with Christ in the afterlife. You're going to get wealth in a time in which you can't lose wealth in the afterlife. Everything accumulated in this life, you can't hold on to. Jesus says, what would it profit a man if you gained the whole world? And you lost your soul. Do you believe in an afterlife? Satan wants you to be so content on this present earth that you make it your heaven. 
And what's the problem? Some of you I know are thinking, I don't really understand the problem there. Because God's Word says, do not love this world or any of the things of this world. Because if you love this world, the God is not in you. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the simple pride of life, all these things are not of God. They are from Satan. And he does it so that you will be so busy, so distracted, so caught up in the affairs of the world, that the afterlife will sneak upon you and catch you unaware. God tells us to keep our minds and our eyes fixed on heaven, not on the earth. Church, the church has become worldly. This scripture from Colossians is a central theme to this seven-part series on the afterlife. Colossians 3.1, it says, Since you have been raised to a new life with Christ. Is that us? I'm asking you. That's why we're here today. Since we have been raised to a new life, a new life. We're, we're not trying to accumulate the world's wealth. We know that there's an afterlife. We're accumulating. Do not store for yourself treasures on earth. What? You can't hold on to it. Since we've been raised to a new life with Christ, what do we do? We set our sights on the realities of heaven. Now, if you're a visitor with us today, I want you to know, back of the, the bulletin, there are blanks. They will be shown in yellow so that you can maybe keep up and take some notes today. We've been raised in Christ. And we've been called to set our sights. That means you focus your attention on the realities of heaven. Why? Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Let me ask you, church, what are you going to do with this? These words from the Word of God, what are you going to do with this? Set your eyes on the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. Verse 3, for you died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, what's going to happen? You're going to share in His glory. And you'll be able to hold on to that treasure forever. I've not met very many people that didn't think they were going to heaven. Have you? I've not met very many people that didn't think they were going to heaven. In fact, there's one thing that comes to my mind. It's a friend of mine, been a friend of mine for most of my life. I was standing in the front yard several years ago talking to him, and he said something that kind of caught me off guard. He looked at me, and I was sharing Christ with him. And he looked at me, and he said, Terry, I know that I'm lost. He just, I, I didn't pry. He just confessed. Terry, I know right now that if I died, I would go to hell. I know that I'm lost. And my response is, why would you spend one day in that condition if you don't have to? To my knowledge, to this day, and that's been years ago, he has still never come to Christ. I've been to funerals of non-believers. You've been to funerals of non-believers. 
And you know what everybody says at funerals of non-believers? I'm not here to judge their eternity. That's, that's way above my pay grade. But to a person who their whole life claimed not to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I've been to funerals of non-believers, and you know what everybody says? He's in a better place. Everybody's in a better place, I guess. In funeral homes, people say, what? You know what the line is. I'm not making light of the line. I'm just being real today. You know what people say? He was a good man. He was a good man. Not once in all my years in visitation funeral homes has somebody ever said, well, he was a jerk. I suppose that if you thought he was a jerk, you probably wouldn't have went to visitation that particular day. He's a good man. Can I ask you a question? How good is good enough? How good is good enough to go to the afterlife? Does everyone go to heaven? Is everyone in a better place? There's this religion, people don't want to call it a religion, but it's a religion called universalism. And the religion of universalism is that everybody goes to a better place. It's practiced in funeral homes around the world. Universalism, he's a good man, he's in a better place. She's a good woman, she's in a better place. It's universalism. It doesn't really matter who you are, what you did, what you didn't do, what you believe true or what you believe false. It just You're in a better place. It's universalism. The problem is it's not true. It's just not true. I'll never forget sitting at a table. Years ago, when I was still in the business world, and we had a bunch of Japanese guests that had flown in from Japan, and my job was to take them out to dinner one night, and I did. We're sitting at a table at a restaurant, and I thought I would entertain myself by asking them a question. Now, understand that from Japan... They have fundamentally Buddhism and Shintoism, two Eastern religions that pretty much mean nothing to most Japanese. There's a very, very small percent of Christians in Japan. So we're sitting at the dinner table, and I look around these guys, and I say, uh, I'm curious, what do you think happens to you when you die? You want good table conversation, that's a good one. What, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Well, the first guy, I'll never forget this, there's, there's one guy, he, he looks at me and he says, nothing happens to me when I die. I believe it's just fade to black unconsciousness. When you're dead, you're dead. But the second guy, he spoke up and he said, no, 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 no. He said, I believe in reincarnation. He, see, he said, I believe that if I live a good life, that I can come back, my soul will come back reincarnated in another creature. And then he said, if I lived a really good life, I can come back in a horse in Kentucky. <laughs> now he said, you don't want to be a horse just anywhere, but if you have a really good life, you can come back as a horse in Kentucky because horses in Kentucky live better than a lot of people. And then I said, well, what if, what if you live a bad life? He said, if you live a bad life, then you come back as a pig or some kind of a creature that no one likes. And then I asked a question. This conversation went on for a while. And then I asked a question. But how do you know what's good enough to be a horse in Kentucky? He said, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? 
you're basing your eternity on what you don't know? You see, even these men, when I went around the table, very few of them believed in nothingness. Most of these guys formed in, in, in Eastern religion believed in an afterlife. Why? Listen carefully. Why? Why are these guys, none of them had ever read this book, why do these guys believe in an afterlife? I've concluded this, because without heaven, life is meaningless. Without heaven, let's be real, be, be honest. If you came from nothing, and you're going to nothing, then what is the meaning of your life between the two nothings? Nothing. Just be honest. Just be, why don't you just be honest? If you don't believe that God created you, it's His breath in my lungs, so I pour out my praise. Well, that means that I believe that, that life comes from a life giver, the Creator, the, God the Father, the Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, that one. That, that I believe there's a before, and that makes me believe there's an after. And if there's a before and an after, then in the middle, there's a purpose, right? There's a purpose. And even these guys formed in Eastern religion acknowledge there must be something after because if there's nothing after, then what I'm doing right now is meaningless. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Is everyone going to go to heaven? See, it's one thing to acknowledge there is an after. But the next question is, does everybody go to heaven? in the after let's ask jesus you know a lot of people have a lot of opinions i have no intention of coming back in a horse in kentucky or anywhere else there's a lot of places you can ask the question seek the answer to the question does everybody go to heaven but Jesus himself says that he's the gate and he's the way and he alone, he says he alone holds the key to heaven's door. Do you want to know the truth? You see, I'm asking the question, do you want to know the truth? Are you sure? Because a lot of people say they want to know the truth as long as the truth doesn't conflict with your current life. Preacher, tell me something that makes me feel good. That's why everybody goes to funeral homes and says he's in a better place. Because they don't want to deal with the truth. Nobody wants to deal with the truth. Where can you get the truth? On TV? Can you? What about Google? Everybody goes to Google, right? Can you Google? Does everybody go to heaven? Maybe watch the news and see, does everybody go to heaven? Wait till somebody puts out a documentary on KET. Well, I'll tell you something entertaining. I thought I'd ask Siri. So I got my iPhone out and yesterday, and I just played a game with her for a little while. I think she became aggravated after a little while. She is a little touchy. I said, Siri, hey, Siri, does everybody go to heaven? She doesn't know. She gave me the most roundabout answers, and finally she quit talking to me. <laughs> I don't think Siri knows how to get to heaven. But I believe I know the one who does. And I'll tell you why. He's from heaven. And right now, he's in heaven. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And here's what he says. 
In John 10, verse 7, he, Jesus, explained to them, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep, and all who came before me were thieves and robbers. But the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate, and those who come in, come in through me, will be saved. Saved from what? They will come in and go freely and will find good pasture. Where, where are you going to? What are you going to be saved from? And where is this green pasture? Where is this good pasture that the sheep are going to go to? It's in the afterlife. In John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he makes a bold proclamation. He says, no one, no one can come to the Father except through me. In Revelation 3, 7, Jesus says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true. The one who has the key. He's got a key. Jesus has got a key of David. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. Can you overpower him at the door? It sounds like he, he's got this door and a key to the door. And if he shuts the door, the door is shut. And if he opens the door, the door is open. Jesus is the gate. He's the way. And Jesus holds the keys to heaven. He owes the keys to death. He holds the keys to hell. He's telling the truth or he's a liar. All of us at some point in our life are going to have to come to this conclusion. What are you going to do with this man Jesus? Is he telling you the truth? Because he says, I tell you the truth. Or you think he's a liar. The Father has given all power, authority, and dominion to his son Jesus. Jesus not only holds the keys to heaven's gate. And you know, most of you in the room probably don't struggle with that picture. He holds the keys to heaven's gate. And if that door, he shuts that door, that door shut. You won't push him out of the way. And if he opens that door, that door's open. But listen carefully. He also holds the keys to the place of the dead. There is an afterlife. There is an afterlife for the saved. Church, listen. There is an afterlife for the saved. And there is an afterlife for the lost. In Revelation 1, verse 18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I died. I am the living one, but I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever. Paradise. I died. But now he lives forever in paradise. And he says, I hold the keys of death and the grave. He, most Christians believe and acknowledge he holds the keys to heaven's gate. But you need to understand there is an alternative. When I seek the answer, does everyone go to heaven? He says there's another key to another destination. I hold the keys to death and the grave. I guess you could call it the master key. It's a narrow gate that Jesus holds the key to called paradise. It's not narrow because he didn't make it big enough. Why is the gate 
narrow? Why is it not wide? Is there some architectural flaw? No. It's narrow because he knows in advance who's going to believe him. He knows in advance who's going to choose him. He knows in this room right now, in this room right now, I don't know, but he knows in this room right now who believes that he is who he says he is. He knows in this room right now whether or not you are sold out to him and the afterlife or you have been duped into pursuing treasures in this life. He knows. I don't know. He does. Matthew 7, 13. You can enter God's kingdom only through a narrow gate. Why did he have to bring that up? You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide. And for the many, why do you have to say many? I guess that's why it's wide. For the many who choose that way. It's a choice. Do you understand? It's a choice. You can choose to fix your eyes, your sights on this current world and allow Satan to have your entire life's purpose, the accumulation of more and more and more and more and more and more stuff, more and more and more of what the world has, knowing you can't hold on to it. You can't hold on to it. You will die and somebody else will be left to throw it away. Sell it at the 127 yard sale. He knows. It's a choice. There's nothing wrong with having things until those things take your eyes and your purpose off of the afterlife and the narrow gate. Verse 14. The gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult. I am not a prosperity preacher. I'm going to tell you the truth. The road is narrow and the road is difficult. If you want the easy way, it's not Jesus. If you want the way to eternal life, it's only Jesus. But it is not the easy way. And look at what he says. Only a few ever find it. So let's go back to the question. Does everybody go to heaven? Who are you going to believe? Jesus says only a few are ever going to find it. Many are not going to find it. A few are going to find it. Find what? The gate is not a thing. The gate is a person. The afterlife is coming. The afterlife is coming for the saved, and the afterlife is coming for the lost. And we all have the thing that keeps us from the afterlife in heaven. Are you ready? There is a thing that keeps us out of the afterlife of paradise, out of the afterlife of heaven. What is the thing? It's called sin. We've all got it. Why don't we just agree right now we've all got it. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of heaven's gateway, which means no matter how good I am, that Japanese guy thinking if you're really, 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 really good, you get to come back as a horse. None of us are good enough to come and go to heaven. Nobody is. We're not good enough. I'm not good enough. You're not good enough. In fact, the only one that was good enough, the only one without sin, they hung on a tree. His name's Jesus. Heaven is not our default location. 
Because we are sinners, we are not entitled to God's presence called heaven. No one in the room is entitled to heaven. It is not my default location. It is not my original setting. Why? The wind blows toward hell. Natural man blows toward hell. My natural inclination is never to follow God. My natural self never follows God. My natural self rebels. Let me prove it to me. Let me prove it to you. No, I don't need to prove it to me. Let me prove it to you. How many of y'all ever wake up in the morning and say, you know what, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sin today. You don't have to do that, do you? In fact, just let go. Just let go. Just let go. Throw your sails up and let the wind blow. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to sin against God. But I'll tell you what, to wake up today and say, I'm going to walk with God, will be to walk against the wind. It'll be to turn your back upon the world and your own nature and face God. It's the hard road. It's narrow. You see, the problem with the natural man is hell is my destination. Because sin is who I am. It is my nature to sin. And because it is my nature to sin, hell is natural. No one goes to heaven automatically. No one goes to heaven naturally. Regardless of what you hear in funeral homes, it's not the truth. Unless our sin problem is resolved, the only place we will go is our true default destination, hell. Unless our sin problem, and we've all got it. You don't have to look at somebody else. Just look at you. Unless our sin problem is dealt with, we will go to our default location, hell. It's natural. There is an afterlife for everyone. There is an afterlife for the saved, and there is an afterlife for the lost. And I'm going to tell you the truth. Church, if you die in your sins, if you die unforgiven, or you meet Christ unforgiven, either way, if you die or He returns without you dealing with this sin issue, you will never enter heaven's gate. And I'm telling you the truth. If you die in your sins, unforgiven, you will never enter heaven's gate. Sin is a sickness. And a sickness that leads to death. And there is no death in heaven. You need to get this sickness cured before the Lord calls you into the afterlife. And the cure is this. Listen, I'm going to tell you the cure. I'm not going to just tell you we've all got this sickness, that the sickness leads us to a destination called hell. I'm going to tell you the cure to the sickness. You're forgiven. And only one can forgive you. God wants to forgive you. He wants to erase your sin, to remove it as far as the east is from the west, to bury it in the depths of the ocean. He wants to take away your sin. And if He can take away your sin, cover your sin, then you enter the afterlife holy so that you're prepared to meet holy 
How can I have my sins removed? Jesus. The blood of Christ atones for, pays for, pays off your sin debt. In John 8, 24, Jesus says, this is why I said that you will die in your sins. You know who he's talking to? He's talking to religious people that thought their works could get them to heaven. He thought that you could be good enough, kind of like that idea that I could be good enough to be like in a racehorse. No, no, no. He's looking at religious people. And he says, this is why I said you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. You know, I can't look at the audience today and I can't say you and you and you and you and you. You all really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But I can tell you this, he knows. He knows. Is Jesus who he says he is? He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. He is the payment of God for my sin price. You see, I believe that. I'm not even struggling with that. I've gone so far now I can't even consider turning around. I believe that He is who He says He is. That He is the atoning sacrifice for the sin of all mankind. God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish. What do you mean perish? Perish means you're going to approach God with sin. Still on you. And if sin is still on you, you're going to die in your sin and you will never enter paradise. I'm going to read verse 24 again. That's why I said you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sin. So the question today becomes this. Can't I just wait until later to deal with this preacher? Because you see, i got a lot of things I want to do with my life, preacher. i got a lot of things I want to accomplish with my life. And this old Bible thing really complicates a lot of my goals. It, complica it complicates a lot of my desires. Can't I just wait till, like, when I get to retirement age, when I start Social Security, then I'll look at this. Can you wait? What's the hurry? And can you know for sure? Let me ask you, do, do you want to know for sure? We dare not wait and see when it comes to the afterlife. We dare not wait and see what's on the other side of death's door. Do you really want to wait and see what's on the other side and enters this afterlife? You want to wait and see? We can't just cross our fingers and hope that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Next week, I'm going to plan to deal with this question of can you know for sure? But I want to tell you something today. That voice that whispers in your ear, there's no hurry, you got plenty of time, that voice is not God talking to you. I am sure of that. You know why? Because when the Holy Spirit calls you, you must listen. In Joshua 24, 15, Joshua says this, but if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose. If you're not interested, then just go on, quit lying to yourself. Just choose whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, Joshua says, as for me and my family, we're not going to waver between these two positions. We're just going to choose. We're going to serve the Lord. When I left Itachi in 2002, my coworkers gave me something, a beautiful gift, 
a parting gift. I'd spent 17 years with this, these people in the business world before I quit and came into the ministry. And they gave me a gift that hangs in my living room today. And it's this quote from Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's one of the most precious things they could have given me. Why? Because I want everyone to know this. I want you, after five minutes of meeting me, if you don't know who I am, I want you to know that as for me and my house, we've chosen. We've chosen. I don't, not just church people. I don't want just church people to know I've chosen. I want anybody I meet to know we've chosen. As for me and my house, we've made a decision. We're going to serve the Lord. I'm not into this whole covert Christianity thing because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for those who are being saved. You must choose. And I'm going to tell you, church, you must, be, you must choose when you are called because there is no guarantee that you'll be called again. I still remember August 1988. I am in a room. The preacher is preaching. And I can tell you this, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this, I cannot tell you a single word that preacher said that day. But I can tell you what the Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit said, if you believe it all, you believe none of it, and tonight you'll decide. My life changed that night. That night. I was at a fork in the road. I heard clearly God call me. But I ask you a question. What if that night I had refused to listen what if that night I, I quenched the spirit and walked out the door is there any guarantee that he would call me again is there any guarantee that not now because you know what i got some things i got to do god 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 i got some things i want to do and when i get those things done i'll get back to you second corinthians 6 1 as god's partners we beg you we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. Church, there are people sitting in this room right now that have, accept, that have received this marvelous gift of God's kindness. You know what it is? It's the truth. You know how I many of the people in the world don't know the truth? And you know the truth. And you're ignoring it. What's he saying? I beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness. What? He's wanting to reach down, pull you out of the eternal fires of hell, and set you on a road to paradise. And your answer is, I'll get back to you on that. I got some things I want to do. I'm more interested in serving myself right now, Lord. For God says, next verse, for God says at just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. You know why the right time is now? Because there's no guarantee that later He'll call you again. There's no guarantee. He might. He might not. Let me ask you a question. Everybody in the room, let me ask you a question. If you die tonight, are you certain you'd go to heaven rather than hell? I'm going to pause for a moment on that question and look at the Bible what it says as you make up your mind as you formulate your mind what what, what is the pursuit and purpose of your life I, I i think it's reasonable that i ought to tell you what this book says about hell hell is a place created by god for the punishment of satan and his fallen angels 
Do you know how I know that? Jesus told me. I believe this is the Word of God. And Jesus says this, Matthew 25. Then the king will turn to those on his left. These are the lost. And he will say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for who? For people? Uh Uh-uh, not originally. Prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. And I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. And I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. And I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. And I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Pause in the story. Anybody think this sounds a whole lot like about the rich man and Lazarus? You know why the rich man didn't do it? Because he was in love with the world. He was so distracted by the world and accumulating wealth in this world that he had no time for anybody else. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refused to help the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away. Who's they? Who's they? This place is clearly defined as created by God for Satan and his demons, right? That's what it says. Jesus said it was created by God for Satan and his demons. But there's another category that's going to join. They're going to be cut off to the left on judgment. They're called the goats. And they were the ones who belonged to Satan. They belonged to this world. Satan had sold them this world in exchange for paradise. It's a bad deal. Verse 46, And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. The word eternal is used three times. Did you notice it? There is an eternal fire, there is an eternal punishment, or there is an eternal life. Hell was prepared for Satan and his demon followers. But it is also for everyone who belongs to Satan, belongs to this world. They have made this world their heaven. There are only two spirits. There is the Holy Spirit and there is the unholy spirit. And everybody in the room, everybody on planet earth, belongs, is possessed by one of the two. You are owned by the Holy Spirit or you are owned by the unholy spirit. There is an afterlife for both. Revelation 20, verse 10. Then the devil, who had deceived them. How did he deceive you? How does he do it? He makes you trade the current world for the future life. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever and ever. Even though it was created for Satan and his angels, there will be people there. People who have rejected eternal salvation offered by the blood of Christ. You know what they rejected? I'm going to make it simple. They rejected the forgiveness of of sins they rejected it that's why jesus came to forgive our sins to be the atoning sacrifice but you didn't receive 
the sacrifice. Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Is this question for you? Is your name recorded in the book of life today, right now? That kind of dispels the funeral home logic. He's in a better place. Not everyone is in a better place. Not everyone is in a better place. The torment never stops. It is an everlasting suffering. Just as sure as as heaven is a place of eternally blessed, hell is a place of eternally cursed. Eternal blessings or eternal curses. Now I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. I've heard some preachers and I've done some studies and I've heard some preachers that I deeply respect. I'll give you one's name. Dr. David Reagan. Talk about how hell not being eternal. But the people in hell will eventually disappear into unconsciousness depending upon the judgment of God. Now let me explain what that means. I've heard some preachers that I have a great deal of respect for, Bible scholars that will take Bible verses, and I've studied them myself, that would explain why they believe that a hell for the lost is not eternal, but it is dependent upon your judgment. For example, one person might receive 10,000 years, and then they turn to dust unconsciousness. Another person might receive 5,000 years and they turn to dust unconsciousness. Listen, I don't know, but I do know this. Would you be okay with hell if you only had to spend 1,000 years there? I don't even like going to the dentist and having my teeth cleaned. Much less the idea that I'm going to be in torment for an amount of years only to end in unconsciousness. Now I'm going to tell you, I personally come down on the side that it is eternal. And that the worm cannot die. And the worm is the illustration of human life that cannot die. But you know what? To me, I'm not going to get caught up in that question. I'm not doing it. Because this is not a difficult choice for me. Is this a difficult choice for you right now? Is this hard? Are you struggling? Well, you know what? If it's not permanent, then maybe it's, not, maybe it's okay. Really? You see how Satan does it? Where are you going to be in 100 years? Well, I don't think about it. Then he's already got you. He's already got you. What do you mean? You, you think you're not going to die? You think it's never going to come to you? He's already deceived you. Hell is a place of fire. It is darkness. There is weeping. There is gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of conscious punishment of sins without any hope, any hope of relief. 
Most preachers today don't want to talk about hell. It's not very seeker sensitive. It's so narrow-minded. It's so judgmental. You can't grow a church talking about hell, preacher. You know what? I was never told to grow a church. I was told to preach the gospel. If the church grows or doesn't grow, that'll be up to him. It won't be up to me. I was told to tell the truth. Hell is a real place where real people are going to spend a real eternity without a real Savior. Hell is a place of absolute hopelessness. Nothing good is ever going to happen there. People there are going to have physical bodies. Are you listening? People there are going to have some kind of a physical bodies. Those bodies will feel pain and suffering, but they will be unable to end their suffering. You can't commit suicide there. You can't kill yourself and stop it. You'll want to die, but you can't die. And I'm going to ask you a question. In light of today's topic, do you think you're being compassionate when you neglect telling somebody about hell? Do you think I as a preacher would be compassionate to preach about the afterlife, talk about heaven, and never bring up hell when Jesus himself said, most people are going to go to hell? I'm compassionate to you? That's not compassion. That's deception. Jesus loves people. Jesus is compassion. And you know, Jesus said more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Are you listening to me? And if you're in the room today and say you believe in Jesus, you just don't believe in hell, then you're already lost. You don't have a clue. You don't have because to believe in Jesus is to believe the words that he it's being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. So is Jesus compassionate? Are you compassionate when you go to a family member? And that is not, listen, that's not calling in your friends and saying, y'all going to hell, preacher told me to tell you. That is not it. Jesus is compassionate. And I'm going to tell you what he said. Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both your soul and your body in hell. Is that compassionate? Is that loving? I think it is loving. It's a warning. Matthew 13, verse 40. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will remove from His kingdom everything that causes sin and everyone who does evil. And the angels are going to throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you think that's compassion? It's a warning! Is a warning compassion? Yes! Mark 9, 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fire of hell with two hands. I'm going to ask you a question. Is there anything in your life right now, church people, is there anything in your life right now causing you to sin against God? Get rid of it! Get rid of it! What are you doing? What in your life is tempting you away from eternal life with Christ? Get rid of it! 
Do you know how many people, how many men in this church have come to me because they're addicted to pornography? There are men in this room. Well, I'm a straight-up shooter. Here we go. There are men in this room who are struggling with pornography right now. You got it on your phone. You got it on your computer. Get rid of it. If you can't control it, you better get rid of it. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It'd be better for you to not have a hand and enter the kingdom of God than to enter, have both hands and be thrown into fire. Get rid of it. I got people, they've come into my office and we talk and they tell me, you know what, I just can't control it. I say, take, take your computer, open the window and throw it out. I did advise, look down there and make sure there's nobody down there before you pitch it out the window. And then throw it out. Is there anything in your life that is keeping you away from God? Get rid of it. Would you trade sex for God? I remember there was a guy who came into my office and he had his wife with him and she had caught him in adultery. She knew it. He admitted it. They both knew. They come and sit down. And he spends the first 10 minutes giving me all the rationale why it was okay until I just couldn't sit there anymore. And I just leaned over the desk and said, do you fear God? Because I'm curious. Do you fear God? Obviously not. You, you have no clue. You have no clue that you are selling your soul. You're selling your soul for sex. I hope it was good. But you know the reality. This isn't just about sex. or This, this is about the decision in your life to absolutely forget about the afterlife. To pretend like nothing matters. Eat, drink, and be merry. For this is all there is. No, it's not. No, it's not. One of the most graphic stories that Jesus tells about the afterlife, I covered at Easter, rich man and Lazarus. I'm going to summarize that one more time. In hell, the wicked suffer terribly. In hell, they are fully conscious. In hell, they retain their desires. In hell, they retain their memories and their reasoning. They are fully aware of the past. They are fully aware of the present and they are fully aware of the future. In hell, they long for relief, and they cannot be comforted. In hell, they cannot leave their place of torment. In hell, there is no hope. It's too late. And in hell, the rich man finally, listen, amazing to me, in hell, the rich man finally became evangelistic. Go tell my brothers about this horrible place. But it's too late. There's a part of all of us that doesn't want to believe in hell. I get it. I do. I get it. There's a part inside of me that doesn't want to believe in hell. Why would God, a loving God, make such an awful place? Some say it's a clever, frightening motivator that churches use to improve their attendance portfolio. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, preaching about hell probably does not improve attendance. But what if today I'm preaching a message to save your life? I'm asking you. 
What if today I understand up front that this message is not going to grow the church, but it can save your life? Which one? Is hell a real place where real people are going to spend a real eternity without a real Savior? You can't refuse to believe in hell and yet turn around and say you believe in Jesus. Doesn't make sense. Last Sunday, I told you about my crazy dream. Last Sunday, I told you about the fact that I have dreams. I am a sleepwalker, okay? I'll just confess it. I don't do it as much now as I used to, but I used to sleepwalk all the time. I, I'd find myself out in the backyard standing looking at a tree. having no idea why I'm doing that. I'm having a dream, and I walk around the house. Last week, I told you about that dream I had when there's a bull coming down the hallway, and I jump up in the top of the closet. I've had a lot of those experiences, and dreams have been something that I've done a lot, and I actually walk them through. I'll give you a couple of examples. I was in Japan years ago, and I'm on, I think it's the eighth floor of a high-rise hotel, and I wake up, I have gone out the fire escape, and I am on the landing on the eighth floor, and there's a trap door you pull up that goes to a set of steps, and I am pulled up the trap door, and I wake up. I am locked out of my room. I sleep with clothes on, okay? <laughs> I need to say that. So you know what I have to do? I have to go down to the lobby, and there's this little Japanese girl about this big, and she, she can't understand hardly any English, and I have to go up to her and get, convince her to let me in my room. All she wanted to do was call the police. I've had some terrible dreams, and I've had some good dreams. But there's one dream I had when I was a child, and I think it has to do with, um, I, I don't know, I can't really find its origin. But I've always, when I was a child, I was terrified of Tyrone Bridge. And Tyrone Bridge, before Bluegrass Parkway, was the only way you could get back and forth to Lexington. So I had a terrible fear of Tyrone Bridge. I can remember when I was a little bitty fella, that there were four boys, with my, I had three brothers, and we, before seatbelts uh, and all of that, um, I remember when we would go over Tyrone Bridge, I would crawl up in a ball underneath my brother's feet in the floorboard because I couldn't stand to look out the window of Tyrone Bridge. I'm okay now, so if some of y'all are wondering, I drive Tyrone Bridge now. But it was years later that I had a dream, and I want to share it to you the dream as an illustration today. I had a dream that it was a fogging morning and I was driving to Lexington to do a hospital visit and I was going across Tyrone Bridge. When I popped over the hill heading down toward the river, something told me that something was wrong. This is a dream, okay? This was a dream I had not so many years ago. Something told me that something's wrong in my dream. So I slowed down cautiously before I came to the bridge itself when my headlights pierced through the fog to see that the bridge had fallen overnight in my dream. I was struck by the horror of those who probably were on the bridge when it fell and the horror of those that in the fog had before me fallen over car by car by car not knowing that the bridge was gone. And in my dream, an urgent question came to me. 
in my dream, there was an urgent event, almost like one of those heart palpitation events. Would I turn around at the bottom of Tyrone Hill and drive back up as fast as I can to get over to Bijou Parkway to go to that hospital visit? Or would I, would that be option A, or would I turn my car sideways, turn on my flashers, and do everything in my power to stop these cars from plunging over into the river to their death? I tell you that story, that dream, to illustrate this. Is it unloving to speak of hell? Not if it's true. Not if it's true. What would you do to stop somebody from free-falling into the lake of burning sulfur? What would you do? Once you found out that the bridge is out and death is imminent, would you just go find another route and say, thank you, God, that I didn't fall off the bridge. Do you feel any responsibility to those behind you who are falling over? Because you now know the bridge is out, but you don't feel any responsibility to tell any of those people? And you think it's unloving to talk about hell? You see, the people who think it's unloving to talk about hell still are not convinced of its reality. Satan's lie is that heaven is just barely better in this present earth and that hell is not real. See, love demands a warning. Love demands a warning. Jesus has given us a warning. It's in the Scripture. I can't imagine one of you all one day, I can't imagine one of you all, you want a nightmare? One of you all one day screaming across that great chasm to me saying, why didn't you tell me, preacher? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me about this place? You'd be mad if you went to the doctor and he didn't offer you the cure to your sickness when it was readily available. What kind of a doctor would he be? Sin is a cancer. We all got it. It has a 100% mortality rate. And the loving thing to do is to announce the diagnosis. The diagnosis is you have sin. And sin is a curse. And the curse is death. And you got it. Why do we want to pretend like we don't have it? You know everybody's going to die. The most loving thing I can do is tell you sin is a cancer that brings death. And there's a cure. His name's Jesus. It is loving. It is the most loving thing to announce the truth about the consequences that are coming to those who refuse to accept the cure. I want to close today by reading a paragraph from Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. Here's what he wrote. God and Satan are not equal opposites. Likewise, hell is not heaven's equal opposite. Just as God has no equal as a person, heaven has no equal as a place. Hell will be amazingly dull, small, and insignificant, without company, camaraderie, purpose, or accomplishment. It will not have its own stories. It will merely be a footnote on history, a crack in the pavement. 
As the new universe moves gloriously onward, hell and its occupants will exist in utter inactivity and insignificance and eternal non-life of regret and perhaps diminishing personhood. This is what the Scripture says about those who die without Jesus. Second Thessalonians. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from His glorious power. And I continue his paragraph. Because God is the source of all good and hell is the absence of God, hell must also be the absence of all good. Hell will have no community, no camaraderie, no friendship. I don't believe hell is a place where demons take delight in punishing people or where people commiserate over their fate. More likely, each person is in solitary confinement, just as the rich man is portrayed alone in hell. Misery loves company, but there will be nothing to love in hell. Right now, earth is an in-between world touched by both heaven and hell. Earth leads directly to heaven and directly into hell, affording a choice between the two. The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life on earth is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will ever come to hell. For unbelievers, it's the closest they will ever come to heaven. The reality of the choice that lies before us in this life is both wonderful and awful. Given the reality of our two possible destinations, shouldn't we be willing to pay any price to avoid hell and go to heaven? And yet the price has already been paid. What was the price? Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. And these words, with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seal and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God and from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Apostle Paul writes the church at Philippi, and I believe he tells the truth as revealed to him through the Holy Spirit. Here is the conclusion of this matter of heaven and hell. Philippians 3, verse 18. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They, have he they are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for Him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like His own, using the same power with which He will bring everything under His control. What a contrast in those verses. What's on your mind? What's the pursuit of your life? Some people's minds are only on earthly things. But we, believers, have claimed a citizenship in another place, heaven. They have received, we have received the forgiveness of our sins through faith in Christ. I want to do something in closing before he comes out to sing this song. Put up Colossians 3.1. I took out the words we and put in first person. And I want to read this aloud today as an act of worship. And I'd like to ask you to read it aloud with me, but I want you to think consciously what's coming out of your mouth. Listen to these words. These are 
words of truth if they belong to you. Read them aloud with me. Since I have been raised to a new life with Christ, I will set my sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. I will think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For I have died to this life, and my real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is my life, is revealed to the whole world, I will share in His glory. I'm going to ask Chad to come on out. You know why we sing songs? Well, it fills up a time slot. You know why we sing songs? Because God has reached down and pulled us out of the lake of burning sulfur. He has delivered us from the flames. He has taken our destination, which was hell, and changed it to heaven. He is worthy of your worship. And today, the Holy Spirit calls you to Christ. If you are already a believer, this is your song of celebration. If, it, if you are not a believer and the Holy Spirit's calling you today, come forward. Come forward. Let's stand. Jesus bled and died.